Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, The Life in 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you are watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days 18 through 23, Saturday through Thursday, June 2nd through June 7th, 2001. Let's go, Blue. We miss you. Come on, Adrian. Get better soon. So keep it up and your spirits high, because we believe in you. We love the way you're always there to bring us smiles. So go, Blue. We're thinking of you. Just remember, we love you. Three Burbank High School cheerleaders on the video. I obsess over Adrian's lab results. John does too, but in a different way. Adrian's platelets have dropped from 272,000 to 113,000 in five days. They are below normal now. John, however, is more intrigued that Adrian's platelets show his birthday, January 13th. He sees his birthday everywhere, on marquees, in commercials, and even on the NASDAQ and Dow Jones numbers when he follows the stock market. I was supportive of his superstition. You're right, honey. It means something. Until he began seeing his birthday on clocks. It's futile to point out to him the time is 1.13, twice a day, every day. I can't believe John's only comment on Adrian's labs is his birthday. What about Adrian's increased risk of bleeding? When I called Children's Hospital, a random oncologist assures me the drop is normal and the platelets will recover. Within three days, they do. WBC is up, ANC is up, her immune system is strong. However, her hemoglobin has dropped, which increases the possibility of a blood transfusion. Our bodies are complicated, yet resilient. The first round chemo barely affected Adrian's immune system, but the doctors warn me this will not always be the case. The more chemo she endures, the worse it will get. On Sunday evening, my friend Marilyn asked me to go to a party with her. Both John and Adrian urged me to get out of the house. I don't want to go, but with three people pushing me, I acquiesce. Marilyn takes me to an all-female season premiere airing of Sex in the City, a show I never watch because we don't have HBO. A club in West Hollywood sponsors the event. The local celebrities attending include Jillian Barberi, a weather girl more known for her tight skirts than her meteorology expertise, and Lara, a local DJ on Star 98.7, one of the most popular radio stations in Los Angeles. As I sip an apple martini, my first one ever, the crowd mesmerizes me. There are the tacky, trendy outfits. Lara is sporting a leopard print cowboy hat and a belt buckle with so many fake rhinestones, it screams, look at my bling. Jillian is more subdued in her tight pants and her Victoria's Secret water bra that gives her instant cleavage. She has that lollipop celebrity look about her. Her head is too big for her body. I hear the chatter and laughter of women all around me talking about the most trivial subjects, fashion, 
makeup, diet fads. I watch as they give each other that kiss on each cheek greeting that may be sincere in Europe, but is all for show in this town. For Maryland's sake, I am a good sport and keep my opinions to myself. I feel stupid for being here. I have nothing to say to anyone because my thoughts are elsewhere. Did John remember to give Adrian her 8 p.m. meds? How is she feeling? Will she need more Zofran for the nausea? Does she have nausea? I drain the rest of my martini and order another one. Usually two drinks will bring on a buzz, but not tonight. Distraction and worry outweigh the effects of alcohol. From the bar, I can see almost everyone. I hate these people. Their biggest problems are finding the right accessories for their designer outfits. To my relief, Marilyn takes me home after I finish my second martini. The night was not a total wash. I did discover a new drink. In a journal entry dated December 4th, 1985, I wrote, Today, the most exciting thing happened. I found out the baby is a girl and she is all right. All right meaning healthy. I was worried because mother took numerous pills during her first trimester to dull her grief. If Adrian had been a boy, I'm not sure I would have ever become excited about a new sibling. That day, when I found out she was a healthy girl, I changed my attitude toward my mother. I went from being judgmental to being helpful. At the hospital, mother's co-workers threw her a baby shower. I folded each outfit with care, mostly dresses, picturing my baby sister in them. The sundress with strawberries on it was by far the cutest. I decided Adrian would make her public debut in it. I waited in anticipation for Adrian to become a noticeable bump in my mother's profile. I wanted to see evidence of my sister. By the spring of 1986, there was no doubt my mother was due any day. She had gained almost 60 pounds and her stomach was as round as the globe in my school's library. Adrian was breached, so a C-section had been planned for April 8th. Nine days before, Mother grabbed me as she began swaying. Help me to the couch, she said. Your sister is turning. Afterward, I felt her stomach, finding Adrian's head, which was the size of a small lemon. Sure enough, she had moved. Mother was excited. She preferred to give birth vaginally because it was cheaper and her recovery time would be shorter. However, a sonogram the next day revealed bad news. Adrian had moved, but when she did, one leg got stuck in the birth canal. Dr. Hale, Mother's OBGYN was adamant about the C-section now. With Adrian's leg trapped, there was no other way. I would see my sister on April 8th as planned. It was a Tuesday. I wore my favorite outfit to school, black stretch pants and my white sweatshirt with panda bears and rainbows on it. Because of a standardized test that morning, we eighth graders missed half of our arts period. I was sitting on the floor of the dance studio watching the older students execute the adagio sequence in ballet class when an announcement boomed over the speaker system. Andrea Wilson, please come to the office. Your mother is in labor. Andrea, please come to the office now. Thank you. Giggles rippled across the room. Our charter school had fewer than 200 students, so everyone knew my mother was pregnant. I grabbed my bag and ran out the door, hearing echoes of good luck and congratulations. They didn't understand. Mother's C-section was supposed to be in the late afternoon. She shouldn't be in labor. Something was wrong. My mother's cousin drove me to Brookwood Medical Center. My anxiety subsided when we found my mother, still pregnant, ordering people around from her hospital bed. A male nurse explained they had to stop the labor, which started earlier that morning, in order to make sure the baby was developed enough to be born. Mother yelled something like, Developed enough? 
My C-section is in five hours. I don't think the baby will grow anymore between now and then. Just bump up my surgery and take her out now. I felt sorry for the guy. He looked like a dog with his tail tucked between his legs as he shuffled out of the room. Since the OR had no openings and Dr. Hale wanted to run tests, Mother's wish was denied and her labor was stopped. When the male nurse walked back in, I couldn't decide if he was brave or stupid. His announcement the baby was fine barely elicited a glance from my mother. I imagine she was thinking, I told you so. I've been a nurse since before you were born. We never saw him again. Too bad. The verbal sparring made the time pass quicker. Mother and I played cards, one of our favorite pastimes, unless I was winning. At that point, she would accuse me of being too competitive like my father. Since today was special, we didn't keep score. The minutes ticked by as we played countless hands of gin rummy. It was almost time. No liver pain since Friday is what I write in our medical Bible, but the ringing in Adrian's ears has continued along with constant nausea. Zofran does not alleviate the nausea, nor does nightstand stop mouth sores from forming. Adrian naps daily and experiences low-grade fevers. I wonder if the fevers are a side effect of chemo. Her doctors have no answer. They tell me not to worry. It's a typical dry Los Angeles summer with temperatures over 100 degrees in the San Fernando Valley. The house we rent does not have central air, just a window unit in the living room. When she's not sleeping, Adrian curls up in her favorite chair next to the air conditioning and watches television. I sit on the floor in front of her, monitoring her every minute, except when I nod off from sheer exhaustion. Tess, the nurse assigned to us by American Home Health, breaks up our morning routine. She arrives every Monday and Thursday before 10 a.m. Adrian likes her and enjoys the reprieve from me. Tess draws blood, flushes the lines, and changes the caps every Monday if I have not already done so. Replacing the old caps with new ones is not difficult to do, but knowing Tess will take care of that task eases my mind. One less thing to remember. Tess earns our trust quickly because she is dependable and competent. We like her. I think she likes us too. She says Adrian is one of her youngest and most entertaining patients. Adrian takes her bath every night after her 8 p.m. meds. I help her by putting her central line in a Ziploc bag and then taping it to her chest. The young woman who didn't want to show me her swollen abdomen a few weeks ago now has to shed most of her clothes before my eyes. Modesty disappears when you are ill. I can tell Adrian is losing weight. The new Victoria's Secret underwear I bought her last week is hanging off her butt. I figured she was a large since I am a medium, but I didn't think about the potential weight loss. At 138 pounds, she left the hospital five pounds lighter, but she looks even smaller now. She is delighted with her new weight. <laughs> Before I examine her body too closely, Adrian kicks me out of the bathroom. She won't take off her now baggy underwear in front of me. She has her limits. Once an insomniac, I am asleep within minutes of lying down every night at midnight. All those years of dancing, which left me physically exhausted, are nothing compared to what I feel now. The mental fatigue erodes my brain cells, one at a time. They seem to be dying off, unprepared for this emotional journey. I can remember exactly how many milligrams of Tylenol 3 Adrian has taken in the last week, but I cannot tell you what movie we watched yesterday. With fewer cells, my brain filters data in a new way. It throws out the unnecessary information because it has to leave room for the important stuff, the medical stuff, Adrian's stuff. Only when I sleep do I escape the constant toiling of my mind. I wake up at 7.55 a.m. to Tchaikovsky's March from the Nutcracker. 
Adrian bought me this clock for Christmas years ago, but since John hated the noise, I stopped using it. The clock came out of retirement because without a snooze button, it is guaranteed to get me out of bed on time. I wash my hands and retrieve the Nupogen vial out of the refrigerator. Walking into Adrian's room with all the necessary props, an alcohol pad, some gauze, a band-aid, and a shot, I nudge her awake. I'm about to do it. Make it quick, she says. A wipe, a pinch, I'm in, release skin, inject fluid, I'm out. Apply pressure with gauze, slap on the band-aid, all done. If she winces, I have performed this task well. A verbal outcry, however, indicates a wrong angle. The injection was too slow or too fast or some other error on my part. As her weight decreases, I wonder if there will be enough fatty tissue for the shot. If Adrian's thighs become too thin or if they have too many contusions, I am supposed to use her arms instead. For now, I alternate legs. I know which leg I did the day before by looking at the color of the various bruises, which are forming penny-sized polka dots on her inner thighs. After the dreaded shot, our day begins with breakfast, one piece of toast, crackers, or a boost shake, whatever I can coax Adrian into eating. Breakfast also includes all of the 8 a.m. medications, which averages four pills and the requisite swish and spit of Nystatin. Adrian spends her day in one of three outfits. Her new blue Victoria's Secret nightgown, a light pink pajama top with a loose pair of shorts, or a long dark pink pajama shirt. We watch television most of the time, but then pour over the mail when it arrives. Letters, cards, care packages, and even Bibles. Adrian asks me why people are sending her Bibles. I tell her they mean well, but they don't understand a Bible does not help her. Sometimes we don't know the sender, or it's someone we barely know, like Alex's mother or my first cousin on my dad's side, who is not related to Adrian at all. Like people flooding her hospital room, I know the mail will subside as Adrian's disease progresses. People need a happy ending. Adrian is excited when two of her favorite teachers, Cindy Burns, dance, and Sybil Bennett, English, stop by to say hello. We didn't know Miss Bennett had launched a fundraiser at Burbank High. She, along with another teacher, personally donated $500 each. A parent, who wished to remain anonymous, donated a month's rent. $1,250. A student who didn't know Adrian donated his paycheck of $60, which he said was a gift from God. Ms. Bennett hands me the money in an envelope. It adds up to just over $3,000. The generosity of the students, teachers, and parents in our community stunned me. Tears well up in my eyes as I say thank you. Adrian diffuses my astonishment by giving a tour of her room, pointing out where the roses used to hang from her ceiling, explaining why she cannot have any more stuffed animals, and showing off her altar with its stones, candles, and chalices, as well as her new bed and HEPA filter. The visit ends with all of us sitting in the living room, watching a 30-minute video made by Adrian's classmates. During the first segment, three boys, two of whom dressed up in long-sleeved collared shirts and black slacks, are running a mile for Adrian. They spot the camera after each lap, giving thumbs up and victory signs. Their pace is steady and they finish in six minutes. Never give up, they say. If we can run a mile as fast as we did, you can get better. Four female students wearing Groucho Marx glasses with an attached nose lead the next segment titled, Hey Radio, or Happiness and You. One girl faces the camera. She asks, what animal do you hate the most? 
When a white paper sheep glued to a popsicle stick dances into the frame, Adrian burst out laughing. I had no idea she had shared her sheep theory with her peers. An energetic blonde dressed in a yellow tank top and jeans leads three other girls in a choreographed dance to the Go-Go's We Got the Beat. She yells, I'm doing this for you, Adrian. Dance with us. As the girls continue to dance and sweat, the blonde smiles. Whew, she says. Much to Adrian's delight, some male students read A Midsummer Night's Dream with terrible accents. Another boy reads lines from a sonnet. One girl says, I had fun competing with you because you're so intelligent. While most of the female students identify themselves by name, few boys do, but Adrian knows most of them. There are a few more segments. An incident with an aunt walking across the camera lens. A tour of the various bungalows that serve as temporary classrooms until the new school is built. And one boy talking as if he is the wizard Gandalf, the school is Middle Earth, and the students are his subordinate hobbits. The video ends with a tight zoom on Ms. Bennett who says, Keep studying. Don't party too much. Students laugh in the background. We would like to see you get into UCLA. But she hates UCLA, Ms. Bennett, says one student. Yeah, she likes USC, says another. Oh, okay, Ms. Bennett says. USC, or Stanford, or Harvard, or Yale. Don't settle for anything less. We look forward to seeing you graduate with everybody else in a couple of years and seeing you go off to college. Nadia brought the In-Home Supportive Services, IHSS, program to my attention last week. Our social worker, Grace, doesn't think we will qualify, but it can't hurt to try. A pamphlet about the program says IHSS will pay for services provided to you, the patient, so that you can remain safely in your own home. The types of services that qualify include house cleaning, meal preparation, laundry, grocery shopping, personal care services, such as bathing and grooming, and accompaniment to medical appointments. If it didn't have the disclaimer that only people over 65 years of age and some disabled children are eligible, every housewife in America would finally get a paycheck with IHSS as their employer. It is a long shot. Cancer patients, especially children, are not usually labeled as disabled which boggles my mind. Adrian can't go to school, read for long periods, walk more than a block, or do any of her chores. Neither Adrian nor I say it aloud, but cancer has slowed her down. Is that enough to receive IHSS? Just before 5 p.m., I say goodbye to my mother as she is wheeled into the OR. She arranged it so I could be in the nursery when Adrian was born, one of the many benefits of being a fellow healthcare professional. A nurse gave me blue scrubs to put over my clothes, made me wash my hands, and then escorted me down a long, wide hallway. I sneaked a glance into each room, seeing one giant belly after another. I had become a 13-year-old peeping Tom in search of my mother. The nurse must have noticed my concern because she said it wouldn't be long now. We turned a corner and she left me there. Just wait, she said. I was about to meet my sister. I asked myself, would she like me? More importantly, would I like her? I watched as other newborns arrived. Nope, not her. Another boy. How long does a C-section take? Are all the newborns so ugly? Yes, they are. However... When Dr. Hale placed Adrian in my arms for the first time, 
I didn't care that she had a big forehead, squishy eyes, and flesh skin covered in dry, yellow, crusty stuff. I felt this rush of love jettisoned through my entire being, so powerful I thought it could knock people down. I would do anything for this kid. For the first time in my life, I understood what the term unconditional love meant. All parents are supposed to have that kind of love for their children, but my parents' love came at a price. I would give that love to my sister, Adrian, who opened her eyes, a deep royal blue, and looked at me. She seemed to be thinking, who the hell are you? I'm Andrea, your sister, I said, and I promise to never let anything bad happen to you. Okay, kiddo? She blinked and wailed. A nurse took Adrian away from me before I could calm her down. She laid her down on her back and began examining all her limbs and extremities. She tested Adrian's joints by rotating her shoulders and hips, up, down, side to side. Soon she had Adrian's legs in the butterfly or lotus position, knees out, feet together. I thought, wow, this woman is preparing my sister to be a dancer. But Adrian's voice went up two octaves when the nurse turned her legs out. I wanted to snatch my sister away, save her from the agony of forcing one's body into unnatural positions, but that's when the nurse stopped. She wiped off the crusty stuff with a warm washcloth and handed my new sister back to me. No longer crying, Adrian stared at my face. Even the nurse commented on her eyes. How blue, how alert. I knew infants' eyes could change color, especially if they start out blue. Adrian would end up with the most beautiful eyes in our family. Over a two-year period, her eyes transformed from that brilliant blue to a deep olive green. Her father's eyes. Even on her first day of life, Adrian enchanted me as if she had performed a spell like a genie. Blink, blink. I love you, kiddo. The nurse reminded me several relatives were outside the nursery window wanting a peek at our family's youngest grandchild. There they were, my mother's sisters, Aunt Tootsie and Aunt Sue, Uncle Charles, Sue's husband, and their daughter Peggy, my first cousin. They were waving and smiling and looking through the thick glass. As Uncle Charles held up his Polaroid camera, a nurse said, here, let me help you. She held Adrian up at an almost 90 degree angle, so she was now facing the camera. I ran my fingers through Adrian's thick black hair, stroking her head, feeling the soft spots where her skull had yet to harden. In the picture, I am looking down. I never took my eyes off Adrian. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>